God is moving among his people to bring justice in the whole area of human trafficking. 27 million slaves in our world today. Nine times more than were in Egypt on the night of the Exodus. And the Just Us run is just a great way for us to take a step and be involved. And uh, Wednesday night's going to be a fun family event, so I hope uh, many of you will be able to join us on Wednesday. I am going to be a road marshal. I get to wear an orange vest and tell people what to do. And so um, please come out Wednesday. Bridge Kids, thank you for being here. You are dismissed. According to the online bookseller, abebooks.com, people leave strange and interesting things in old and used books. Did you know that? Did you ever leave something in a book or find something in a book? Used booksellers receive books, and then they, uh, they catalog them, and they go through every book. Abesbook.com has found some interesting items in some of their books, like they've discovered $1,000 bills in used books. Hope that wasn't yours. This is even more valuable, a Mickey Mantle rookie baseball card. A marriage certificate from 1879. They found a baby's tooth, probably valuable to someone. A diamond ring, social security cards, and then there are the typical things like credit card receipts, shopping lists, business cards, postcards. And then a World War II ration book with stamps still remaining. I mean, they could purchase things with those stamps. World War II discharge papers, a valid driver's license. Somebody was probably wondering where that was. A dead cockroach and a strip of bacon. I'm not sure why the strip of bacon. Adam Tobin, Tobin, owner of the Unnameable Books in Brooklyn, New York, has created a display in his used bookstore dedicated to objects he's discovered in books. Besides the usual stuff, like postcards, receipts, concert tickets, and personal notes, and he really enjoyed the personal notes. People kind of tell their stories in their notes. The most valuable item Tobin has discovered is a letter written by C.S. Lewis, Uh, author of the Narnia Tales and many other books. I've heard stories about people leaving valuable things in Bibles. You know, sometimes thousands of dollars have been stashed in many pages of a Bible. Uh, Things like legal documents, sometimes the last will and testament, birthday cards, press flowers from special occasions. You ever seen those? Special to someone anyway. But when you think about used books and valuable things found in the pages, nothing compares to the things written on the pages of this book and the value that they have to us. Within this book, a person can find hope, the purpose for living, guidance for life, peace with God, the real heaven, and an eternal relationship with with the true and living God. The book of Exodus teaches 
us much about God. And, you know, we've been in this, if this is your first time, we've been in this for several weeks. We're all the way up to the last part of chapter 12. Through the series, we've seen 10 plagues against Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. We've seen that God keeps his promises, that he is all-powerful, that God is kind and compassionate toward his people, that he is holy, that he is the God of justice, that he speaks, that he answers prayer. In Exodus 12, the exodus out of Egypt, we begin with two to three million people on the move. That's where we're picking it up today. The exodus is in process. Two to three million people are on the move from Ramesses to Sukkoth. We're going to see that in a map in just a minute. So we're going to begin at verse 43, chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 through 51. We see God's restrictions for the Passover. I'm going to remind you of what that is in just a minute. God gives a lot of information about the Passover and then about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Kind of seems foreign to us, but he's laying a foundation of truth that's going to be unfolded throughout the scriptures and focused on the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to start here with God's restrictions. And regarding the participants uh, of the Passover, the Passover meal, who gets to do this? Who gets to participate? And the assumption is, and this is review, by the way. We've already seen this. It's about God's people in Egypt who are followers of the true and living God. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 43, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. Let me remind you what the Passover meal was. Okay, after the ten plagues, on the night God released his people, that Pharaoh released his people, God told his people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to celebrate a special meal. This is your last night in Egypt. You're going to have a special meal. Each family should take a lamb. A year old, it can be a, a goat or sheep. One year old, no defects. And you are to uh, prepare this lamb for a meal for your entire family. And maybe you need to invite your neighbors if, the, if your family is too small or your neighbor's family is too small. So you bring them into your home, you're going to celebrate this meal together. I want you to take the blood of this lamb, we call it the Passover lamb, and I want you to spread it on the doorposts of your house. Because on this night, about midnight, God said, I will pass over Egypt. And when he did, and this was was what this was about, he passed over Egypt, and all of the firstborn of Egypt were slain in a judgment by God. The firstborn male of Egypt were slain, humans and animals. But for the people of Israel, wherever God saw the blood on the doorpost, he passed over that house and there was no death, okay? That's the Passover meal. They were to celebrate this on the particular night and he's also establishing a meal that they should celebrate every year in the future. So he says, these are the regulations. No foreigner may eat it. What does he mean by this? He means nobody not a part of uh, God's people who have made a commitment 
to follow God. And one of the ways they demonstrated that commitment is by the males uh, over the age of 38 uh, days were basically circumcised, and that was an act of faith. It's hard for us to understand. That was an act of faith demonstrating their heart. By the way, it was quite a commitment, too, especially on adult males. Okay, so any slave you brought may eat it after you have circumcised him. Now, people didn't want to do this just so they could eat a meal. They had to be in on this. They were committed if they were going to be involved in this. But a temporary resident or hired worker may not eat of it. This isn't, I mean, we, we have such a high view of do- tolerance. We say, well, that's not fair. Well, it doesn't mean they can't come or they can't live in the community. It's just this is not a part for them. This is about a worship to God, and God takes it seriously, and he wants people to uh, pay attention to what he's saying. He wants them to be prepared. They won't understand it. Verses 46 and 47 regarding the Passover lamb. Here's more information. We already know a lot about the Passover lamb. Sheep or goat, one year old, no blemishes, no imperfections. Verse 46, it must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. And that's going to be significant. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. Now the key here is, um, and the idea was if you take it outside of the house, you're going to dishonor God. You got this, God wants you to do this within a meal, in a community, among people, and to remember, okay? So follow the instructions. Then he says, don't break any of the bones. This is going to be important. The Passover lamb's bones were never to be broken for hundreds of years, not to be broken to today as well. These are God's instructions. This is going to be really significant by the time we get to Jesus and the death of Jesus. This is so important that the Apostle John points this out. He understands what this concept has been moving toward. John 19.31. So think about this. The Exodus happens around 1446 B.C. That's the early conservative estimate of the day. We don't know exactly. 1446 B.C. BC. So now we come to the first century. We're 1,500 years later. Now it was a day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because Jewish leaders did not want the bodies, the bodies of Jesus and the criminals left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Remember when somebody was crucified, the way you hurried their death was you come up and you smash their legs And then they would go limp. They couldn't raise themselves up to breathe, and so they would suffocate on the cross. It would hurry their death. They did it to the criminals, but when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. Next slide. Soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, which was a fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53, with the spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Next slide. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. So hundreds of years earlier, there's prophecy about the Passover lamb. Ultimately, they didn't know it was going to be a person. And John, speaking for God by the Holy Spirit, identifies Jesus as a Passover lamb. He's getting the big picture that God has been unfolding for years through prophecy. 
Verses 48 and 49, regarding circumcision of all males, look at 48, a foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised, then he may take part like the one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies to both the native-born and the foreigner residing among you. So, non-Hebrew people may participate if the male's in the household, assuming that means a male has made a commitment to follow the true and living God and is bringing his family into that as well. Um, This was not meant to be just a religious rite, you know, just to make sure you got the skin cut. It was way more than that. It was about a true commitment to following the living God. Verses 50 and 51 regarding following God's plan. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, and this time they got it right. They follow, they do what God says, this is a good thing, and God's going to bless them for that. Verse 51, on that very day the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. And this is, by the way, a reminder. On that very day the Lord uh, brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It's just a reminder. God did this. This was God's work. This was God's salvation. He did it. It wasn't because the people were really smart. And it wasn't because the people had a great deal of skill in negotiating with Pharaoh. You know, it wasn't because they had this big army and they just scared Pharaoh. It was the work of God that brought them out. There's no other explanation for this. And they come out in their divisions. First, we go to chapter 13, God's instructions about the firstborn male. Now, I made a mistake last week, I have to confess. I said we were going to talk about uh, crossing the Red Sea. That's next week. We can't get there this week, all right? But we're setting the stage for that. God's instructions about the firstborn male. This is one of those concepts that's hard for us. The consecration of the firstborn, verses 1 and 2. This is just a summary. Then there's going to be an explanation in verses 3 through, or coming back later in the chapter. The uh, the summary. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. It means to dedicate to God. It means to set this firstborn male apart to God. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So God is saying, I want you to give back to me the firstborn, whether human or animal. Dedicate the firstborn back. Now, uh, keep in mind, there's a direct correlation here between what happened on Passover and what God is asking here. What happened on Passover is God passed over, and wherever there was no blood from the Passover lamb, the firstborn in the family, whether human or animal, died. When God passed over Egypt, the Egyptians and their livestock and animals died. Okay? It was judgment. God could have killed them all, but he, 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 he killed one in the family. When God passed over Israel, what happened? The firstborn was saved. Firstborn humans, firstborn male, firstborn of the animals was saved and protected and covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Okay? These are the ones God 
saved. So God is saying, which I want you to do now, is I want you to give those firstborn back to me. Um, so the, and the firstborn, whenever they would do this, it would remind them, when you dedicate, this isn't like, oh no, I don't want to give my firstborn. It's, it would cause them to think, this is what God did for us. He passed over. We, all of them could have died, but he passed over ours, and he judged uh, Egypt, and we were delivered from the power of evil, okay? And one of the things that God is doing here is he's setting the stage. It's going to be hundreds of years in development in the Old Testament, and it's going to lead up to Jesus and what this is going to mean. And it's going to, it's going to, it's, there's a lot of things that are going to happen even during the time of Moses that haven't happened yet. But this concept of the firstborn is made. Verses 3 through 10, the celebration of the feast of the unleavened bread. This is review. We already know about this. Uh, After the Passover meal, they were set aside seven days and they they were to eat unleavened bread. And yes, it was, uh, it was sort of a discipline, but it was a focus. It was a reminder, just like on that night. We're going to remember this. The, the whole event starts with the Passover meal. Then it's going to go to seven days of unleavened bread. And we're, gonna, we're not going to work. The only thing we're going to do is prepare food. And we're going to focus on our relationship with God. Not on the stuff of our days. Not on the trials we're worried about. We're going to focus and remember on God, what he's done for us and who he is and what he wants from us, okay? So, verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day. So this is important to God. The day you came out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Remember what that day that was? Aviv 14. What does that mean? God said, On this day, this month, that will be the very first month of your calendar because I'm doing something new. I'm establishing you as a nation. So this now will be the first month of your year. All right? We're starting something brand new. God is making this people a nation. They were not a nation, they were just a bunch of slaves. Now God is going to give, give them, um, He's going he's to take them to a new land called the Promised Land. He's going to give them land. He's going to give them a constitution. It's called the law of Israel. It's going to how to live in the land. He's making them a nation. And guess what? He's given them a king. And he is it. It's called the theocracy. It's a good way to do government, by the way. It works really, really well. Follow God. But this is what the intention was right here in Exodus 13. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving what the Lord brings uh, you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are all people groups. Who are they? They're living in the land God is going to give to the Israelites. And they're not living in a way that honors God in any way. Okay? A land flowing with milk and honey, that's how it's described. This is way better than Egypt. You are to observe this ceremony in this month. So these are instructions for the future. For seven days, we already know about this, eat bread without yeast. On the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during these seven days. Nothing with yeast in it will be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. There's a lot of stuff here God is going to unfold in Scripture about what the meaning of this is. Unleavened bread. 
they are to be reminded they had to eat this in haste. And God wants them to think about it. Okay? Verse 8, on that day, tell your son. There's got to be some teaching, some instruction. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. I hope you see. This is really, really important to God. He wants his people to know about how this happened, why it happened, what it took, and what it means. Verse 9, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. Does that seem like it's too hard? Okay, God says, I want you to remember this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat this meal. You don't have to work for a week. But I want you to remember this. I want you to keep this in focus. It, it, it would be about thanksgiving and praise and honor to God. That sound bad? Sound like people, you know, but, you know, God's people sometimes get tired of doing things. And sometimes God's people don't explain well why they're doing things like this. And people become bored and people get critical and they come up with better ideas on how God should run his world. Let's go to the commemoration of the promise, verses 11 through 13. Arrival at the promised land, Exodus 13, verse 11. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, because that's where they live, the people who live in that. It's not really a country, but it's called the land of Canaan. And gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, particularly Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and Joseph. And let's look at that. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, which was Abraham's name before it got changed. It was Abram first. Go from your country. He was from the land of the Chaldeans. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God says, I want you to go. You got to get up. You got to move requires faith. You've got to follow what God says, or you could just sit back in Babylonia. And so God says, go. I want to show you land. It's important. It's going to be important through the Old Testament. And by the way, it's still important today, and they're still fighting over it. And this promise has not been ultimately fulfilled, and it will be. Okay, next slide is uh, chapter 13. The Lord said to Abram, after a lot, so time has passed, a few years, the Lord said to Abram, after a lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. It's kind of important. Forever. Hasn't happened yet. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So Abraham's just one man, he's got one wife, and he has no kids when this promise came about. And by the time we get to the Exodus, we're talking about 600,000 men over the age of 20 and their families. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Next slide. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. So God sent Moses on a journey to go see the land he promised. My point is now, God is going to take... Let's look at the map. 
There we go. Life is good. There's the map. We don't know exactly the details of the promised land. It may look something like this. I think a lot of scholars would think it's bigger than this. One of the things you can observe about that, this is not the land of Israel today. It's quite a bit smaller. But this is roughly what we see in the Bible as the promised land. God was going to give it this group, this particular piece of land to Israel. He was going to take them there, make them a great nation. And uh, you can see we keep Jerusalem in there. Jerusalem didn't really exist like that, but we always keep it in there to show you for just a, a reference. So this is called the land of Canaan, and it will become the land of Israel. Um, in the days to come, Okay, back to verse 12. Giving of the firstborn. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. So this is kind of summarized what we've already seen in verse 1. Redemption of the firstborn. This is more explanation. Verse 13. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. How about that? Redeem every firstborn among your sons. What is that about? Redeem. It means to buy back. So if you have an animal like a donkey, you need to redeem it. What do you do? You're going to pay some money to the central location. Later it will be the tabernacle and the priesthood. Or later it will be the temple and the priesthood in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where the redemption would go early, but it's going to end up going to the Levites. But the Levites aren't marked out yet. So there was to be a redemption. There was to be a price paid, and it was God's money. You get to keep your donkey, but you're going to pay a little for it because it belongs to God, and God wants you to remember that. Okay? And God wants you to remember how he delivered you. And, okay, I don't want to give money for my donkey. I don't want to pay a redemption for my donkey. God says, break its neck. You're not going to have it. It's mine. Easier to pay the money than to break your donkey's neck. I don't know that that was very popular, but God just made it clear, okay? And then what about your sons? Well, there was no human sacrifice, so um, you redeemed your sons. You, you paid a price for your son. You bought him back. You acknowledged, my son belongs to God, and I give this to God in honor of him and what he's done for us, okay? So the firstborn belongs to God. Verses 14 through, and uh, later it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost five shekels. I think I missed the slide. It's okay, I won't go back to it. Uh, Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, his parents took him to the temple and they paid a redemption for him. They dedicated him and they would have paid, whether they didn't pay five shekels, they the, the priest said if they're poor, maybe he could come up with a lesser amount. But they, would, they did this. And the thing to think about with Jesus is, and we forget this. So, okay, Jesus is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But he lived under the Old Testament law. His family lived under the law. It's going to be his death on the cross that inaugurates a new covenant 
We call it a New Testament in his blood. But he and all those in the Gospels lived under the law and kept the law were required to. Verses 14 through 16, the commemoration of deliverance. Uh, Verse 14, teach this. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. We see it again. This is important to God. He wants his people to talk about this, to remember this, to think about who God is. It's going to make a big difference on how you live each day when you understand who God is and what he's done for us and what he can do for us in the future and what his promises are for the future. So just a question for us is, what are you teaching about what you know about God to your kids or your grandkids? What are you passing on to the next generation? Verse 15, understand this. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals. This is why, so here's the explanation. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first a male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. See, there's a really close connection between Passover and the death of the Egyptian firstborn and the salvation of the Israelite firstborn. God wants his people to remember this. So, verse 16, remember this. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. This is a sign. Now here's what happened. One of the things that happened, this, this, was, this what happened with people when they want to get religious and super religious. And you can't fault them too much for wanting to follow what they thought God was saying here. The way they would take it later, and especially by the time of Jesus, um, the the Jewish teachers of Jesus' day, like the Pharisees, they wore phylacteries. And those were little leather pouches with a box inside that had scriptures written on them. And they wore them around their head. With a leather strap, they had a little... And it made them... It sort of came across as being pretty spiritual. You wear a phylactery, you're not embarrassed, you're spiritual. Because why? You got the commandments of God on your head. And they also would wear a phylactery around their left arm. And uh, same thing, leather band, leather pouch, scripture inside, God's word, God's commands. Why on the left arm above the elbow? Because it's so close to the heart. Okay? So they thought this through. But most scholars think this is probably metaphorical and not literal, Certainly the idea was God wants this at the center of people's thinking, remembering God brought them out. He delivered them with his mighty power, and he wants his people to talk about this, speak about it, remember it. And uh, so the main thing is remember it. So God's guidance, last section. God's guidance in the Exodus, verses 17 through 22 First, the short route to the promised land. Look at verse 17. When the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. And you can see a map coming in just a minute. Through the, 
though that way was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And God was exactly right. And God had a plan, and he knew what he was doing. And let's see the map. Okay, this reminder, lower Egypt, the water in the river is flowing down to the Mediterranean Sea. Looks like it's flowing up to the Mediterranean Sea. So that's why it's lower. And you can see Goshen, that's where Joseph's family and Jacob's family settled. Ramesses is one of those cities um, that where um, Pharaoh imprisoned. They were, they were in uh, much larger areas than Ramesses. Imprisoned the Israelites and they were enslaved. Um, it, was a, it was a store city and there was amazing building industry going on there. And so they come out of Ramesses, and they went to Sukkoth, went south, and now they're going to Etham, okay? Or they've gone to Etham, and uh, when God began to lead them, he could have led them the shortest route, which would have taken two weeks. You know, the arrow pointed toward Jerusalem. And it's, it's, it's the way of the sea. It's the ancient highway along the sea. It's where the troops traveled. And this would have been a heavily armed route. So if you took three million people on a walk, they would have encountered major military forces from different countries, including Egyptian outposts, little forts of Egyptians ready to defend their area. They don't know about the Exodus. They don't know about Pharaoh. They just know three million people are trying to get away. And the point is, they, uh, the Israelites would have been devastated. They, would have been, they could have been wiped out. Uh, um, thousands or millions of people could have died. And they would have been taken captive and become slaves again. So that's not God's plan, the short route. Sometimes God doesn't take us the most direct way. Have you ever seen that happen? He doesn't take us the shortest route. Then there's the long route, verse 18. So God led the people around to, by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. The key thing is God led them. That's when you want to follow, when God is leading. So let's look at the map, the long route. So you can see it's way south. And this looks kind of short when you think about it, but this isn't... This is just how the long route could have worked. But God's going to take them south. He's going to protect them from the armies. And by the way, they aren't really a nation. They aren't really ready for any battles. They aren't ready to fight. But God leads them out, and, it's, and the picture is battle array. They went out of Egypt in order. And probably this is something Moses instructed them in, and it's how to march out. He had been an Egyptian for 40 years. He knew something about leadership. They weren't really armed for battle, but they, they go out in order, and they go out with pride in themselves. But they're going to go south. Where are they going to go? They're going to go down to Mount Sinai. It's also count, called Mount Horeb, and guess what they're going to receive there? The Ten Commandments and maybe 603 other commandments from God. God is going to speak to them and establish them as a nation now, they're, gonna, they're not going to go directly then up to uh, Jericho or across the Jordan River. What they're going to do is they're going to wander for 40 years in the desert. 
But you know, they have to follow God because that's where God is going to lead them because they aren't ready and they have to keep learning lessons in life over and over and over again. Little lesson there is learn the lesson the first time. Um, okay, so then the promise, we're going to leave the promise for Joseph, verse, verse uh, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear on an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Go back. 400 years, Joseph. Who's Joseph? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and jo- Joseph was the son of Jacob. Genesis chapter 37 through 50, we did a series on the life of Joseph a couple of years back about God's dysfunctional family and uh, how Joseph is sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and he, he uh, ends up in prison, and then he becomes a servant, and then uh, God elevates him to the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, and God saves Joseph's family and takes Joseph's family, Jacob and his 12, 11 brothers, and they are saved in Egypt, and the family is 70. Joseph said, I'm not going to look at this passage for the sake of time. In Genesis 50, Joseph reminded his brothers, God will take you up to the land he promised. I want you to take my bones with you. Joseph's bones have been in Egypt for 400 years. Now Moses is going to take Joseph's bones out of Egypt and into the promised land. Verses 20 and 22, the guidance of God, Exodus 13, verse 20. And after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham. I've already showed you that. On the edge of the desert. So they're on the move. And um, you can see the map again. So you can see they went from Ramesses, Sukkoth, to Etham. That's where we're going to leave them today. They haven't crossed the sea yet. That's next week. Um, this is a huge part of the story for 40 years. Verse 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So God will lead them. And God is present with them. And they can see it. They can see him. They see the pillar of cloud by day or nighttime. There's this fire. That's pretty interesting. Pretty comforting. You know, to get up in the morning. Where's the cloud? There it is. Okay, we're good. Cloud hasn't moved. We're not moving today. Oh, the cloud is active. It looks like we're moving. Okay, pick up. We're moving. Fire by night. They could move at night because the fire gave them light and the fire led them. And you followed the cloud or the fire. Wouldn't it be nice if God led you that way? And you just knew what to do because of the cloud or the fire. There were some really good things about that, but it also wasn't that simple either. So um, I want to deal with the question, how does God guide his people today? How does God guide his people? Instead of doing some lessons about the whole thing, we're just going to focus on this guidance part. How does God guide his people today? Well, certainly God can 
guide his people with miraculous signs today. He did it in the, uh, in the Old Testament on many occasions. He did it sometimes in the New Testament, and he can do it today. He can do a miracle, and he can direct people that way. I don't think it's a norm, but he can still do it anytime he wants. Uh, uh, here, so here's some things about kind of what's a normal approach to guidance. Number one, God guides his people through the indwelling presence of Christ. God guides his people through the indwelling presence of Christ. We're not going to look at this, but you can write down Colossians 1.27 because Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have Christ in you if you are a true follower of Christ. In the Old Testament, they had the, they had the p- pillar of smoke or pillar of cloud or they had the pillar of fire. That's great, isn't it? You have Jesus in you. They didn't. You have his, they had the cloud for the whole group, for the three million strong. You have Jesus just for you. He's not there just to serve you, but he's there for you, to guide you, to strengthen you, to comfort you. The second one is, he guides his people as they live by faith. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If you want to know God's will, if you want God to guide you, it's going to require faith. You're not smart enough just to figure it out all on your, you, all on your own. Go ahead, good luck with it if that's how you want to approach life. If you want God to guide you, you're going to have to live by faith. You're going to have to trust him that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You start your Christian life by faith. You place your faith in Jesus. You continue your Christian life by faith. You trust him. You walk with him. The righteous will live by faith. If you want to know God's will for your life, you need to live by faith. Thirdly, he guides his people through his revealed will. Sometimes I find Christians just plain forget this. Um, Matthew 4, 3, and 4, the tempter came to him, that is Satan, and said, this is to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is how Jesus lived. He processed God's word in his life day by day by day. What does God say about this? What do I know already to be true? So, um, I'm just going to touch a couple of passages here. It's really about what does Scripture say for Christian, Christian living. And we know that God never would violate that. So here's a passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. If you want to know God's will, you should offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
If you want God to guide you and if you want to know his will for your life, offer yourself totally to God, okay? Another passage, real simple, 1 Thess chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sometimes Christians really get this confused. They go on how they feel, and sometimes they don't feel in love with their partner, and they find that they feel in love with somebody else, and they think God is leading them to some, someone else. You know what? God doesn't work that way. It's, it's very black and white. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. So this is God's will for you. If you get caught in an immoral relationship, if you're in an immoral relationship, you know what? That's not God's will. If you're locked into sexual fantasies, guess what? That's not God's will. You're probably not going to find God's guidance in that situation. If you're using pornography, you're not going to find God's will stuck there. Okay? God intends his people to be separated from him, separated from sexual sin. He has a high view of sex. Sex is great. He designed it. It's for husband and wife and a loving relationship. You could bring all of the passages in the New Testament, like Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. You got bitterness. You got unforgiveness. You're not going to, God's not going to guide you. You're stuck. God's will is change, repent. Uh, be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other, justice in Christ. This is just Christianity 101. Um, it's a whole lot about living as a Christian. Number four, he guides through wisdom. There's a ton of passages here. I won't address them all. Uh, Proverbs 2, 6 through 9. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk, whose walk is blameless. Living wisely um, has an impact on your life. It has an impact on God's guidance, and he gives principles in Scripture about living wisely. And with wisdom comes success. If you want to write down Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we're not going to look at that. But it says, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Please use your understanding. God gave you a mind. He wants you to think. He wants you to reason under your trust in the Lord. Don't put your reason ahead of your trust in God. Submit to the Lordship of Christ. I'm going to go on to number five. He guides his people through prayer. This is like probably fairly obvious, but it just needs to be said. Um, I have a couple of passages, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and knock and the door will be opened. And this is about living by faith. Uh, you could write down James 1, 5 and I'm going to go to number six. And I don't think you have room for this in your notes, but number six, I added later, he guides people through circumstances and this one may be one of the most practical ones for you and me. He guides people through circumstances. For example, we deal with health issues and health issues change our approach to life. And even 
put us in places where we meet people that we wouldn't meet if we didn't have health issues, like going to the doctor's office or meeting a doctor or being restricted on what you do because of your health issues. And God works through those circumstances. In fact, Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those who love Him. Not all things are good, but God takes circumstances and works good in them. Um, he, he can work through pain. He can work through our finances. Sometimes our finances change in a major way. And that may place limitations or even freedom. Freedom leads to other opportunities and limitations lead to less opportunities. And sometimes it's about people we meet or decisions that we make or how we spend our time. Uh, the economy can change everything. That can put circumstances on you that has... You know, it's out of your control, and that can change uh, choices you have. Uh, everyday trials, catastrophe is one of those circumstances. It's out of our control. It can change major things. For example, a hurricane mobilized the church to serve millions of people in the southern part of our country in 2005. And you can think of catastrophes that happen all over where the church has been mobilized to go serve and had people have had experiences that they never dreamed of or planned on. 911 changed our world drastically. And sometimes only for a short time in some ways, but sometimes at a big time, a catastrophe, circumstances can change and God can work through those. Persecution in the church. We don't face much persecution. Maybe a few people give you a hard time because you're a Christian, but some places people get executed or get their heads cut off because they're Christians. And God has used persecution in the past to expand his church and to grow his church. James 1, 2, you can write that down. James 1, 2 through 4, and Romans 5, 1 through 5, you can write down. Those are just how God works, and he can change us, and he can... Uh, form us more to become more and more like Jesus and we get more dependent when, when life gets hard and we can't control our circumstances. So I want to just conclude by saying God still guides his people and God will guide you if you trust him and you follow his leadership. Next week, we're going to cross the sea. So I want you to come back. It's pretty exciting. It's one of the most exciting chapters in the book of Exodus. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I thank you for the book of Exodus, and sometimes we don't understand things that you've asked your people to do when it comes to the law, and even some of the law that we've talked about today is not required of the church today, but it was required of your people in the Old Testament. Father, help us to learn more and more about you and who you are and what you would desire of us. I thank you that you led your people out of Egypt with mighty power. May we remember that. May we see your love and your compassion and your power. May we see that you have plans that are big and things that we cannot understand and see about those plans and where they're headed and how you're going to get there. I thank you, Father, that you give us courage. Sometimes we need that as we seek to uh, follow you, as we seek to know what we should do next, to be guided by you. And just as we were reminded 
about singing earlier that you make us brave, and sometimes that's just what we need. We need courage that comes from you just to take a step and to walk and to follow. Help us to be brave for Jesus' sake. Amen. Mm -hmm.